Hey, uh, let's go to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew tonight, chapter number 18. We're in chapter 14 last night, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 18 tonight. Matthew chapter number 18. And uh, we're going to pick up the story in verse number 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 21. And it's hard to believe, but uh, man, tomorrow night, last night of our revival service, some of you have perfect attendance so far. And uh, that's great. I hear if you, if, you, if you come tomorrow night and you've been here every night, Pastor Hassel has a gold star for you that you can put on your, your, your little attendance chart for the 2021 revival. So I'm looking forward to getting mine. I don't know about you, but uh, uh, hope, you, hope you can make it out tomorrow night as well. And I appreciate your faithfulness. It's been encouraging to me that you've been here. I know it's encouraging to your pastor. I think it's encouraging to God that, uh, that, that you'd come out on these nights and uh, just focus some extra attention on him and, uh, and just desire to truly hear from him this week. Matthew chapter number 18, verse number 21. The Bible says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? And Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Uh, my wife, uh, she, uh, she enjoys reading, and so uh, when uh, we are traveling as much as we do, uh, she is, uh, she's, she's been privileged to just jump into a good book, you know, and uh, that's kind of always been that way. We've been traveling for quite a bit. Uh, as soon as we got married, we spent our first two years of marriage just traveling on the road as uh, college representatives for the college we graduated from. We were on the road 46 weeks out of the year, and it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed traveling, but you learn when you drive as much as we do that there are certain states that are just kind of boring to drive through, you know? Nothing against the state personally, you know, they're just kind of boring to drive through. Looking at you, Kansas, okay? I mean, I mean Kansas, it's just not a good state to drive. There's just nothing to, to, to look at. It's the same highway pretty much all the way straight through. And so in those types of drives, when my wife's in a good book and I'm sitting there driving, I don't want her to be in a good book. I, I wish she would talk to me, you know, and that way we can, you know, keep me awake, you know. And so what I learned to do was ask the question, how's the book? Now, I have no interest in what the book is. I have, no, I have no interest in if the book's good or not. I just know that that question will get her to stop reading the book and, you know, talk about the book to me. And, you know, we can talk and then I can, you know, stay awake and everything will be great. And so uh, we were driving and, uh, uh, I mean, uh, we are on this drive and we're going through Kansas or something like that. And I mean, I'm getting tired. And so I say, hey, Lexa, how's the book? And she closes that book so fast that I instantly regretted my decision to ask, how's the book, you know? Like, like she was anticipating that I was going to ask her about this book, and she closes it, and she says, oh, this is a great book. You've got to read it. Well, that's not happening. I, I, I don't, I mean, I read, but I don't, I don't, like, like when, and I say my wife likes to read. Like, when she got in trouble as a kid, her parents took her books away, you know? Like, when I got in trouble as a kid, my parents gave me books to read, you know? Like, we're just totally different people in that regard, you know? And so, so she, you know, I'm like, well, I'm, that's probably not happening. I'm probably not reading this book. So why don't you just tell me about it, you know? I said, well, what's it called? She says, oh, it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Well, right away, I'm out, okay? Tidying up is not something that I do. And uh, magic, I mean, I was raised Baptist. That stuff is of the devil, you know? And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out on this book, you know? I don't want anything to do with it. 
And she said, well, the subtitle is The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Cleaning or Organizing. The Japanese Secret to Decluttering and Organizing Your Life. Well, I asked, what's the secret, you know? I mean, that's what the book's subtitle is. I assume you're halfway through this book. She's gotten to the secret by now. I said, what's the secret? She said, well, um, she, she kind of has a bunch of different things, you know, and she starts reading. This is an I quote from the book. I had to write it down because it's just so profound. You're not going to believe I paid money for this book. It says, uh, the key to cleaning out your space is knowing exactly what you want to keep and then getting rid of everything else. Yeah, that's kind of the definition of cleaning it up, right? Like, you got to know what you want and know what to get rid of, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, that kind of sounds accurate there. Like, we, we paid money for this? She says, yeah, but how do you know what you want to keep? I said, I don't know. How do you know what you want to keep? She says, well, this is where the author, you know, she kind of gets a little bit kooky, you know. She, she says that, you know, let, let, she says, let's say, you're, uh, let's say you're cleaning out your clothes. You know, you want to decide what clothes you want to keep. She says you'd go into your closet and, and, and you'd take out, you know, each item and, and you'd hold it up individually and you'd ask each item, do you spark joy? And if the answer's yes, you keep it. If the answer's no, you get rid of it. Well, I had to pull the car over at this point on the side of the road in Kansas because I am just laughing, you know? Like, I am just picturing in my mind, going into my closet, grabbing my socks, you know, and coming out and saying, do you spark joy, you know? I mean, I, I said, Lexa, there would be nothing left in my closet, you know? Like, I mean, I guess it would be clean, you know? Like, I didn't put the shirt on tonight and was like, Wow. The sparks are flying off this one. I mean, you talk about a joy sparker. No, I picked it up, looked clean, put it on. Like, it's good to go, right? Like, I think I'll keep it for another year, you know? I mean, I, 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 we, we laughed about that. I mean, do you spark joy? Man, that, that line has saved me from a lot of purchases in my life, you know? My wife wants to buy something. Hey, what do you think about this dress? I don't know, babe. Not sparking much joy for me, you know? I mean, I mean it has sparked a lot of joy in my bank account, you know? We've saved quite a bit of money uh, off of these purchases. And, you know, we laugh about it. It's an inside joke in our family. But it does make me wonder how easily we hold on to things in our lives even though they don't spark joy. We become attached to emotions like bitterness and anger and wrath, and we store them away in the closets of our heart, even though they rob us of our peace, even though they don't spark joy. And I come to you tonight asking you to, to hold it up, hold up the hurt, hold up the offense, and ask yourself, is this sparking joy in my life? And I implore you tonight, as the Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 and verse number 31, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking with all malice be put away from you and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Listen, bitterness is a nasty root and it bears all sorts of different terrible fruit in our lives. This anger, this clamor, this evil speaking, the malice that we have towards one another. And Paul says, listen, you've got to get it out of your life tonight. There is life-changing power in forgiveness. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to the Lord with a question. And it is a good question. 
In fact, it's a question that has been asked for about 150 years prior to Jesus stepping onto the scene. So this is a well-familiar question in rabbinical thought. The rabbis were debating the answer to the question that Peter asked the Lord. And so Peter just wants the Lord's take on it, you know. He says, Lord, how oft shall my sin, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, he says, how many times do I have to forgive someone who's hurt me before I'm allowed to hold on to the hurt? How many times do I have to offer forgiveness before I'm allowed to get even, right? And then Peter answers his question. He says, uh, seven times? That sound like a good number to you, Jesus? Seven times? Now, Peter's being generous here. Like I said, for 150 years, this is a question that's been asked and debated in synagogues across the region, and most rabbis had settled on the answer three times. That after the third time, you could kind of get out of the law to forgive. But Peter understands he's not following just any other rabbi of the day. He's following Jesus, and Jesus is a little bit unorthodox in his teaching. But where does Peter get the number? Well, I think he gets it from Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus says, if your brother trespassed against you seven times in a day, and you go to him, and he saith, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So Jesus says, man, seven times in a day, you're supposed to offer forgiveness. And Peter's big takeaway from that message was, so what about the eighth time? Like on the eighth time, am I allowed to get bitter? On the eighth time, am I allowed to get even? On the eighth time, am I allowed to make them pay like they've made me pay? What about the eighth time? And Jesus' answer stuns Peter. And I believe it ought to stun every single one of us tonight. Because Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, I say not unto you seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now now what's Jesus doing here? Because I don't think Jesus is giving Peter a math equation to figure out real quick. Like, no, Peter, sorry, you still have 483 times to go. Get your tally book out, keep count, and when you get to 490, baby, you go get them. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus certainly is not just pulling out a bigger number to trump Peter's number. No, Peter, not seven times. Uh, Seventy times seven. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is actually doing is he's referencing an Old Testament passage way back in Genesis chapter number four. Now, Genesis chapter 4 contains the story of Cain and Abel. You remember this story? Yeah, we probably should. It's the first murder in Scripture. Cain kills Abel. And in a little bit of an ironic move, after Cain has uh, been found guilty and God uh, kind of tries him, Cain is now worried that someone's going to find him and kill him. And so God says, okay, Cain, I'm going to put a mark upon you. And if anyone shall take your life, I will take vengeance upon them sevenfold. Okay? Well, after that, you get this genealogy of Cain. Cain had this child, and they had this child. And you're like, who cares who had kids, you know? But you get down to that end of that genealogy, and you find a guy named Limech. And Limech just starts speaking out of nowhere. Like, you're like, this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat Limech. And Limech said, and you're like, whoa, okay, Limech's talking now. Wow, this is weird. And Limech is not only talking, but he's talking in the third person. Anytime someone does that, just run. That's weird, okay? I mean, and he says, ye wives of Limech, hear me. I have slain a child for my wounding. I have killed a young man for my hurting. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Limech shall be avenged seventy-sevenfold. 
And so the ode of Limech is that this little kid has hurt him, has, has, has upset him, has slapped him, and he has taken his life. In other words, you hurt me in a minor way, and I take your life because, in other words, you don't mess with Limech without paying for it. And I tell you, the ode to Limech is how our world operates, is it not? Man, someone hurts you, you get even with them. So, someone wrongs you, you wrong them, and you wrong them more. See, bitterness doesn't just keep the pain in motion. It doesn't doesn't just keep it circulating. Bitterness escalates the pain. Bitterness escalates the hurt. I'm going to hurt you more than you hurt me, and I'm going to make sure you pay even more than how you hurt me. And Jesus takes this ode of Limech, and he turns it on its head. And he says, even as Limech would hurt, would hurt majorly the minor offenses, I want you to forgive even the major Offenses. In other words, what Jesus is telling Peter is he's saying, Peter, you never hold on to bitterness. Peter, bitterness is never the answer. You never go get even. You always offer forgiveness. Now, that's inspirational, right? I mean, you can paint it on a Hobby Lobby sign, but, like, that's not real, right? Like, I mean, Jesus, Jesus, that, I don't think you understand. That person ruined my life. Jesus, I don't think you understand it. Uh, man, I, I, I still have nightmares. Jesus, well, what they said still hunts me. What, what they did still hunts me. Today. God, I can't just forgive them. God, I, 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 you, you don't know my story. You're late tonight. You're right. I don't know your story. I don't know the degree of pain or the depth of betrayal that you have experienced. But I do know this. Jesus says, that my grace is always greater. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's a tough truth to swallow. It's one that just is kind of like, I don't know about that one, Jesus. And I think that's the response Peter had, and I think that's why Jesus then teaches a parable to help explain this to Peter. The rest of this chapter is this parable, and we're going to look at it tonight because I, I, I want to I dissect or, or trisect the parable. We're going to break it up into three parts, and we're going to look at it because I believe the parable helps us understand just how important forgiveness is to God. But more importantly than that, how important forgiveness is for you and for me. So, so a parable is this earthly story that has a, a heavenly meaning to it. It brings a heavenly perspective to an earthly situation. In this case, it's going to be a simple story, one that we identify with, one that we're even going to get lost in, but it's going to unlock a complex truth about God, like forgiving your neighbor 70 times 70. First of all, the first part of the parable that we're going to look at is an accounted debt. That's what I've labeled it, an accounted debt. So would you look at verse number 23 with me? Verse number 23 of Matthew chapter number 18. It says, therefore, this is Jesus' words, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So we're introduced to this king of a kingdom and he is a generous king. He has uh, loaned out money. He has uh, been generous with his funds, but it is time to collect on the debts. It's time to make sure everyone has been paying him back on time. And so he pulls out the record book and the Bible says he's been keeping a careful account. 
amount. And I'm guessing towards the top of the list, he finds the servant that owes him 10,000 talents. Now that sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? 10,000 talents? Yeah, um, I think that sounds like a lot of money. I guess I didn't realize how much money this actually was. Um, money's hard to transfer over because money's always changing. And especially in this case, because a talent isn't an amount of money as much as it is a weight of, of, of money, a total weight of your money. But I am told that um, one talent was about, a, was, was about a year and a half worth of wages for a middle class individual of that day. Meaning that in our day to day, it would be about $36,000. Okay, that's one talent. This guy owes ten thousand talents. Yeah, that's 360 million dollars, right? This is an astronomical number. In fact, the audience would have laughed because it's about 10 times the national budget in Jesus's day. Like no king would have this kind of money. No servant would ever need that kind of money. But the point Jesus is painting is clear. This guy owes a debt he's never paying back. This guy owes something that he can never pay back. It would take him 30 lifetimes to pay back this debt. The debt is never being paid back. And the point, the application, if you will, is that it is meant to represent our standing between a holy God. See, the truth is, God's been keeping careful watch over your life. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Romans tells us that every one of us shall give an account of himself before God. In Matthew, Jesus says, every idle word that man shall speak, he shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So, so God says every word you've said, every thought you've had, it's going to be all broad, and you're going to have to give an account of your life before God. And the sobering reality tonight is that apart from Jesus, we are all in deep, 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 deep debt to God. For the Bible says in Psalm chapter 14 and verse number 1 that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did good and seek God and understand. But they are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul quotes that passage of Scripture in Romans 3 just to let us know it's still true today, even as it was in the Old Testament, when he says, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth. They are all going to become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their mouths they have used the seed. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is quick to shed blood, or whose feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world might become guilty before God. The truth is, our sin condemns us tonight. Our sin condemns us tonight. The wages of sin is death, and all have come short of the glory of God. The Bible says God doesn't miss anything. You can't hide anything from his account. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Hebrews says, neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. God sees all and he knows all and there is nothing that can be hid from his account. So, so just think about it. The teacher might never find out about the test you cheated on. But God knows. And the professor might never find out about the paper you plagiarized. But God knows. 
And the wife might never find out about uh, the, the affair that's been taking place, but, but God knows. And the husband might never find out about the flirting that takes place every now and then, but God knows about it. And you can get soundproof windows and doors and insulate your home 30 times so that the neighbors don't hear you arguing at night, but God knows every argument you've ever had. You can clear the search bar on your websites as much as you want to. God knows every site you've ever visited. He knows all, he sees all, and there's nothing that can be hid from his account. God even knows the pride in your heart when the preacher can't name your sin out loud. Right? Like, well, I don't struggle with any of that. Yeah, but you do struggle with pride, and God says that's sin. So God knows it all. We have all wronged God. This is an accounted debt. But notice, secondly, there's an amazing declaration. This is not what I was expecting to see out of a parable about forgiveness. And yet, it's just amazing to me because God puts us in, in, the, in the first person's shoes, right? We are the servant who owes so much to God. And now God is going to say that the same, or, uh, verse 27, then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. And he loosed him and he forgave him the debt. Now I skipped a verse. Look at verse number 26 though. It says, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Well, what a silly thing to say. We just said it would take 30 lifetimes for this guy to pay back the debt. He's never going to pay him back all the debt. It's impossible for him to pay back all the debt. So what the king does is not um, conditioned by what the servant has just said. Because the servant said something he cannot do. This, this king is moved with compassion strictly because he is a compassionate king, Right? And he's moved with compassion that he loosed him. The word there in the Greek is the same word translated as grace over and over again, meaning that he does for him what he could never do for himself. And then he had, and then he forgave him the debt. Now the word forgave literally means to open your hand or to let go. And I love that because the servant, he owes this debt. He is binded to it. He can never pay it back. And the king is moved with compassion and he does for him what he could do for himself and he lets him go he loses him and he forgives him of his debt he doesn't lower the monthly payments he doesn't make it interest only no he removes the debt entirely from the books the servant gets to go out free but you mark it down someone paid the debt that day someone absorbed the penalty for that debt if there was a CEO today that it came out that he had uh, forgiven a $360 million loan, we would say, you, sir, are a fool, right? Like, you just bankrupt your business, right? Well, that's exactly what this king is doing in the story. He is bankrupting the kingdom, so to speak, for the sake of one man, to give one man forgiveness, to let one man go free. And my friends, if you don't understand what the point of the parable is at this point, I got some good news for you on a Tuesday night, because that's what Jesus does for you and me. Jesus sees us in our sin. He sees us in condemnation. He knows that we can never earn or work our way to God, and yet God's so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, 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 that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on a cross to pay for your sins. 
Oh man, God sent not his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son to rescue us from our sin. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He pays the sin's penalty that would condemn us. Oh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know what you want to call that, but I call that amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was greater. As significant as the debt was, the grace of the king was far greater. And my friends, your salvation tonight is free, but you mark it down. It cost Jesus everything. It came at a great cost. He gave his life so that you might be free. Oh man, we owe a great debt, but the amazing declaration of God is that it is paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. With arms wide open, he pulls up on those nails and he cries, Father, forgive them. He says, Father, open your hand. Let them go, for they know not what they do. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, it was at that moment he took your sin, Eric Getch's sin, and he bore it on his back, the sins of the entire world, past, present, future sins, and he forgave us our sins. He absorbed our sin. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God. Oh, my friends, as he pulls up on those nails one more time, hear him say the words, it is finished. Your debt has been paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's this accounted debt. There is an amazing declaration. But would you notice finally tonight, there's an atrocious display. See, I wish this is where the uh, parable ended, right? But, but it's not. The, the parable takes this disturbing twist in the story. And it just kind of, uh, it just kind of amazes me how, how fast this all happens in Jesus' story. Because the next verse says, but the same servant. Verse 28, but the same servant. So this is the same guy that was just forgiven 10,000 talents. The same servant, okay? The same servant went out and found. The word there, found, means that he searched out. He opened up the, the books of who owed him money. He found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, a pence was a day's worth of wages. So a hundred pence would be a hundred days worth of wages, a little over three months worth of work. Now, this is nowhere in the parable is the Bible saying that this is an insignificant amount of money. If you were out of work for three months, it would probably hurt you. It would hurt you financially. It would be a burden to you. So if someone took you, took you for granted for three months worth of work, it would be significant. Uh, the, and Jesus isn't arguing that point. He's just stating the facts here. He finds a servant who owed him a hundred pence, okay? And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me that thou owest. Okay, so, so picture it. He's just been forgiven 10,000 talents. He goes out and he's, he, he looks. I mean, he, he searches. He finds someone that owes him 100 pence. He says, hey there, buddy. How you doing? Let's go to the dark alley where no one's watching, you know. And he grabs him by the throat and he says, pay me what thou owest. 
whoa, uh, that's not kind of how I was expecting the story to go. He says, pay me what thou owest. And watch what happens next. It says that the fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. It's the same plea that he just gave at the foot of the king. So notice here, he is being asked for the same grace that he has just received, right? He's being asked for the same grace that he just received from the king. The only difference is that it is to a much lesser degree. And all I mean by that is that 100 pence is less of a debt than 10,000 talents. Are we all on the same page there? It's the same plea for grace. He's being asked to do for this guy what he can't do for himself. He's being asked to let him go. So it's the same plea for grace, but to a much lesser extent. And watch what the servant says. Verse 30, it says, And he would not. And he would not. And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Well, um, how is that possible? How can someone who's been forgiven then refuse to give forgiveness? I'll tell you how. Because oftentimes in our lives, it is mercy for me, justice for everyone else. I deserve mercy. You deserve justice. Oh, officer, I am so sorry. I didn't know I was going 90 in the school zone. I, I was trying to get to church. I'm, I'm preaching tonight. Uh, have patience with me. Uh, please forgive me, officer. Right? The Lamborghini goes swimming by. Go get the guy, you know? Man, justice for you. Mercy for me. Take it easy on me, God, but you make sure everybody else pays for their sin. And God is trying to teach us in this parable, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. You cannot receive God's grace and then refuse to give it to others. That's not the way it works. Now, I'll be honest with you. I was, I was reading the story in my devotions one morning. I'm in my office. I got my Bible open. I've got my computer up. I'm, I'm looking up these things. I'm defining words. And, and I, I'm just having a blast with it. You know, I mean, I'm just like, I get lost in the story, you know. And I'm just kind of picturing this all take place. And, and I mean, I am the first servant, right? 100%. I owe this great debt to God. I can't pay it back. And the king, his compassion, obviously this is a reputation of God and what Jesus does for us. I mean, I'm just loving this story. I'm like, this is great. Let's talk about a salvation message, you know. And then me, the character in the story, servant A, he goes out and he finds servant B. And I mean, what a jerk, you know? Like, I don't want to be servant A anymore. You know, like, I'm not servant A. No, I never was servant A. That's kind of how my mentality went. And so my mind, in my office, I'm lost in the story, and I'm like, the king better find out about this. Like, Lord, if I keep reading and the king doesn't find out about this, I'm going to be pretty upset, you know. And so the next verse says that when his fellow servants saw it was done, verse 31, they were very sorry, came and told their Lord all that was done. Verse 32, then his Lord, yes, the king has found out, then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, oh, thou wicked servant. And I mean, I am sitting in my office like, okay, thank the Lord. 
Thank the Lord this is not one of the stories where the guy just gets off on it. You know, like he's going to pay for what he has done. You know, like he needs some comeuppance here. Like this is not the bed of roses king anymore. No, there's smoke coming off of the throne room. There's fire in the king's eyes, you know. And he says, oh, thou wicked servant. I'm like, yeah, I'm all in on this, you know. This is like a good Western movie. It says, oh, thou wicked servant. I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now that is what is called a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. You don't have to answer it. It's too late for you, buddy. Like, time to go, you know. And I'm, I'm like on the edge of my seat. Yes, come on. And the Bible says, then his Lord was wroth. And he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. And I, in my office, just stood up and was like, justice is served, baby. Woo, we got him. And then I read the next verse where Jesus says, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, Eric, if you from your heart forgive not every one your brother their trespasses. And I kid you not, I sat back in my chair and I said, give him another shot. Give him another shot. He'll forgive him now. I mean, come on, give him another shot. Right? Justice for you, mercy for me. I tell you, God again is saying, no, 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 no. You don't get to receive grace and then not give grace. You cannot have your sins forgiven and then keep counting the sins of others. That's not how it works. If you have been forgiven, you've got to go forgive. If you have been given grace, you have the obligation, you have the responsibility to go give that grace to the people who have wronged you, who have hurt you, who have offended you. If you have gotten it, then you must give it. You must give it. You say, well, that's not fair. What they did was wrong. Didn't say it wasn't. They, they don't deserve forgiveness. Not, it's not about what they deserve. They hurt me. They owe me something. They owe me some money. They owe me a marriage. They owe me a, a child. They owe me, at the very least, Eric, an explanation. It's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. It's grace. And you'll never be asked to give more than you've already been given from God. That's what we're learning in this parable, that the grace you've been given is far greater than the grace you are being asked to give. You say, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They're not even sorry. Okay, we don't forgive people because they deserve it. We forgive people because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive people because they're sorry or not. We forgive them because God forgave us. Remember the verse I quoted at the beginning of the message? Uh, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So we forgive one another, not because they deserve it, no, but because God forgave us on Christ's behalf. He forgave us, and so we now go and forgive. Now this is heavy. I'll be honest with you, this is a sermon that is much easier to speak than to live, right? And I want to clarify something, because if I don't, I'm afraid we're going to leave with a very messed up view of God, and I would hate for that to happen. Um, Jesus says in verse 35, 
This is kind of his application, his summary, conclusion, remark to the whole parable. This is why he told it, right? So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So what Jesus is saying is that um, what happened to the man in the story is going to happen to you if you from your heart forgive not everyone who's hurt you, right? What Jesus is asking us to do is go forgive people who have hurt us. We are to forgive like we've been forgiven, right? He says, if you don't do that, then what happens to you is going to be the same thing that happens to the man in the story. Now, what happens to the man in the story? Okay, some people will will try to excuse this away. Like, it's just no, oh, well, this is just a parable. So at some point, it just breaks down. It doesn't matter anymore. No, it all matters, okay? You've got to read the entire parable, what Jesus said he meant, okay? So what some people do is they look at the next verse and look at what they say. It says that his Lord was wroth and he delivered him, this is the servant, he delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Okay, now there's two ways you can read that. You can read it that the Lord was wroth and he delivered him, servant A, unto the tormentors till he, servant A, pay back all that was due unto him, the king, right? And if that's the case, if that's how you read it, I've got a big problem with how you're reading it. Because how long is it going to take him to pay back what's o- what, what he owes to the king? Forever. So you're implying that if you don't forgive, well, then God doesn't forgive. And you're going to hell for everlasting fire and everlasting judgment. Because, and again, this is why I have a problem with that. Because is that our God? Does our God forgive us of our sins, but then as soon as we do something he doesn't like to do, oh, here's your sin back. You can take it. I didn't, I didn't actually die for that. No, that's not what God does. That's not our God. The Bible says he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. It never comes back. God doesn't just pull it back up whenever we do something he doesn't like. No, that, that is a messed up view of God. And I tell you, I refuse to read the passage that way. I believe what the servant is saying, what, what, this, what the parable is saying, the other way you can read it, is that he was wroth, and he delivered him, the servant, to the tormentors, till he, servant A, should pay all that was due unto him, servant A. And what's due unto him? A hundred pence. And by the way, the, the same Greek word for pay there is the, ver- is the same word used earlier as loosed. It means to have grace, to forgive it, to, to, to absorb the pain, to absorb the payments. In other words, this king puts him in prison and gives him the key out at the very same time. And he says, listen, you're going to sit in this prison and you're going to be tormented until you learn how to forgive like you've been forgiven. And I tell you, there's great truth in that because that's exactly what bitterness will do to you. Bitterness binds you in a prison of your own making. It binds you in a prison of your own hurt. And we think that we're going to get them back. But who's really hurting? We are. Bitterness makes our stomachs hurt. Bitterness affects our relationships. Bitterness causes us to not trust anybody. Bitterness isn't letting go of the pain. It's holding on to it. It's, it's robbing us of peace. It's robbing us of joy. As one person said, it's the poison we drank, hoping it affects somebody else. And yet it never does. Bitterness never releases us of our hurt because the truth is there is nothing that you can do to that person and there is nothing that that person can do for you that's going to make it better. The only thing that's going to make it better is by you doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. Giving them grace to let them go. 
to forgive. And God says, listen, if this guy forgives, he's set free. And that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound in your bitterness until you learn how to forgive. It's been said that forgiveness is setting someone free and then realizing that that person was actually you. Forgiveness is setting someone free, letting someone else go, and then realizing that who really found freedom was you. You're the one who found peace. Why? Because you held up a hurt, you held up an offense, and you realize this isn't sparking joy. I'm getting this out of my life. I want the peace. I want the joy. I want joy and peace. And so I've got to forgive like I've been forgiven. <coughs> There's a couple just a couple implications from a message like this. Like, like how, 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 what does this mean for our lives, right? Well, I think the first implication is that you cannot forgive until you've been forgiven, right? You cannot forgive until you yourself have been forgiven. Um, so I'll preach a message like this, and a, a lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, that was a great message, but I don't have to forgive my husband. And I said, okay. And she starts telling me the story about all the things that her husband has done to her. And man, I tell you, by the time she was finished with her story, I said, yeah, you don't have to forgive your husband. Like, yeah, absolutely not. You don't have to forgive it. I mean, I didn't have any answer for the, for the wrong that was done unto her. You know what I said? I said, well, can I ask you this, ma'am? Uh, have you ever been forgiven of your sins? And I was able to sit down with that lady and we talked about her sin and we talked about her if she had been saved. And man, she had not. And so, man, she didn't get saved that day. But man, what I got to was the heart. Forgiving someone is never going to make sense if you yourself have not been forgiven. If you've not been forgiven by God, then you cannot forgive because it doesn't make sense to. It doesn't make sense to. Until you've been forgiven, you can't forgive. Okay, implication number two. You can either be, this evening, you can either be a grace giver or a fault finder, right? Those are the two choices. You can either give grace or you can find fault. Now, my dad says those that go looking for faults are pretty good at finding them. Like, if you want to find a reason to be mad at somebody, you'll find it. People will hurt you all the time. So, man, why not offer grace to the coworker? Why not offer grace to your family? Uh, as one person said, to err is human. To, div to, to forgive is divine. It's divine. Which brings me to my third implication, and that's this. You are never more like Jesus than when you choose to forgive. When you choose to forgive, you are putting on the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That's why he came, to forgive us our sins. We talk about being like Jesus this week. We talk about growing closer to him and being more like God's son. I tell you, the number one aspect to Jesus is forgiveness. He came to forgive everyone. So man, those people that have hurt you, those people that have wronged you, those people that have, that have messed you up, man, it's time to forgive tonight. You say, well, why? Well, because God forgave them. Like when Jesus died on the cross, he forgave their sin. And if Jesus can forgive, then I can forgive. I can forgive. And then the last implication is this. The next time the thought of what was done to you triggers those emotions, that, that fruit of anger and bitterness and wrath. Can I just ask you, intentionally turn your mind to what was done for you. Because what Jesus did for you is far greater than anything that anyone has ever done to you. 
So, so Lord, how oft shall, I sin, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? No, Peter. I say unto you not seven times, but until 70 times seven. My grace is always greater. It's important to God, but oh, how important it is for you and me tonight. Lord, I thank you that you are a forgiving God. I thank you that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I thank you that you loose us from our sin, that you loose us. And Lord, you paid the ultimate price. You were the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And God, I don't know the hurt that's represented in the room. But Lord, you do. You know exactly how deep the pain runs. You, you know how deep perhaps some have felt betrayed. And Lord, you tell us to cast our cares upon you. Forgiveness is not necessarily relieving someone of, of the consequences of their sin. Forgiveness is us not trying to play God. Letting them go. Letting go of the hurt and say, God, I'm not going to let what they did to me be the only thing I ever think about. I'm not going to store it away just letting the anger build and the pain build and the hurt build. Lord, I want to get this out. Lord, I want to let it go. Would I hold it up tonight? Would I understand it's not sparking joy? Then may I cast it out. Lord, you have done so much for us. Your grace truly is great. I think of the song, Marvelous, Infinite, Matchless Grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Man, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow we might be today. Lord, your grace is great. Lord, may we live in that grace. May we who have been forgiven live like it. And may we forgive. May we choose to be grace givers. May we choose to put on the divine nature of God and forgive. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed tonight. Perhaps you've come and you say, Eric, tonight I've never been forgiven of my sins. I don't think I've ever been forgiven of the wrongs that I have done to God. I, I, I've, never, I've never been saved. I've never trusted Christ as Savior. I don't believe my sins are forgiven. If that's you, can I see your hand? I just want to pray for you. I don't want to call anyone out. I just want to pray tonight. They say, I don't know Christ as my Savior. Is there anybody like that in the room? Amen. Well, then, you know, according to the hands not raised, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of us, if not all of us, are Christians tonight. In other words, we've been forgiven. So let me ask this. You say, Eric, I'll be honest with you. I've, I'm forgiven tonight, but I haven't always forgiven like it. I haven't always forgiven like I've been forgiven.
There's something that I've been holding on to. There's some bitterness, there's some anger that I've stored away, and I may try to mask it, and I may try to act like it doesn't affect me, but, but there, there's something I've got to get right tonight. There's something I've got to go and let it go and give it over to God. Hold it up. Realize it's not sparking joy and get it out. If that's you, can I just see your hand? I'd just like to pray for you. I know this is some heavy stuff, and so I want to pray for you tonight. Yeah, good, I see that, that hand there, and this hand here, and over here. Good, thank you. Anybody else? Just pop it up high enough for me to see it, and we want to pray for you. I know this, is, this can be difficult to give over to God. Amen. I appreciate the hands raised. appreciate the, the understanding that there's some decisions that need to be made. I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for the hands that were raised. I said I would, and then as soon as I'm done praying, I'll ask the piano to begin to play. And then, uh, Pastor, you can come and close the service as the Holy Spirit leads you. Lord, I do thank you for the hands that were raised tonight. And, uh, Lord, I, I don't know what was done or said. I, I don't know what hurt or offense it is. But, Lord, I know that your grace is greater. And so I pray that you would give your grace tonight and help us to give it back. Help us to let, to let, us, to, to let it go tonight. So, Lord, release it, and then realize that what we're really releasing is ourselves. We are, we are freeing ourselves from the responsibility to play God. That, Lord, you know what was done. Nothing gets by your, your watchful eye. You see it all. And so, Lord, may we forgive like we've been forgiven. I pray you'd help those tonight that raise their hand. In Jesus' name.